now I'm here and we have one week, so we're not starting a new series or anything like that, but um, I've got, I threw together something from a passage that, that God's used in my life in recent weeks, um, and it's, it's actually a pretty fun one, and I think you're going to enjoy it, because this passage in Judges 3 that we're looking at is actually one of my favorite Bible stories, probably because it's a little weird and a little gross. Um, but God reminded me of this story as I was reading through the Bible this year, and there's been some particular applications for me from this story since I came across it uh, just, just a month or two ago. So I wanted to dig into this story with you guys tonight, but before we dig in, uh, let's make sure we understand the context of what's going on in Israel's history by the time we get to Judges chapter 3. Israel has been out of Egypt for a while by this point. Moses brought them out of Israel near the beginning of Exodus. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, even a lot of Deuteronomy. Moses died and then Joshua took over and he led them into the promised land at the beginning of the book of Joshua. But after they got to the promised land, they had a lot of fighting to do that, so that they could actually take possession of the land that God had for them. And, mo and for the most part, things under Joshua were pretty good. We see that near the end of the book of Joshua, where Joshua 24, 31 says, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So things went relatively well when Israel had defined leaders like Joshua and the elders that outlived him. But soon after those leaders were gone, this bad cycle started. Without those clearly defined leaders and successors to take over when they were gone, Israel went through this process over and over again throughout the book of Judges. This bad cycle boils down to what I put on your sheet. I call it the Judges cycle. Israel disobeys God. God judges them for it. Israel cries out to God to save them from his judgment. God raises up a judge, someone who's called a judge, to save them. The judge saves them, and then he rules over them for the rest of his life. And then when the judge dies... Israel falls back into disobedience again, and then the cycle starts over. This goes on and on throughout the book of Israel, or throughout the book of Judges. There's a couple of verses that sum up this book pretty well. Judges 17, verse 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the story of Israel in the book of Judges. They're just doing that which is right in their own eyes. They don't have a real consistent authority. And you see something similar in Judges 21, 25. Uh, so it gets mentioned on multiple occasions. And like I said, you see this cycle repeat itself until Israel gets its first king in, in first, Sol er, first Samuel. Um, and this passage in Judges 3 is just one iteration of that cycle. And we see this cycle start in Judges 3. Um, I'll start in verse 12. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the, city, or so the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So Israel gets into trouble. They disobey God. They do evil in his sight. So God strengthens this, this king and has him go and, and deal with Israel. And then Israel uh, cries out to the Lord in verse 15, and God responds by raising up this judge named Ehud. And we'll see in this story how Ehud deals with his enemy, this King Eglon of Moab. And from this story, there's actually a lot we can learn about dealing with our enemies. The longer you serve the Lord, you, the more you figure out that, that you have enemies. 
Biblically speaking, you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil, and, the, and those are the three main enemies from which all other enemies derive. And from that, you'll also find that there's people in your life, or there will be people in your life and in your community who will try to subvert what you're trying to do for the Lord. Some of those people don't even realize what they're doing because they're just being driven by those real enemies, the world, the flesh, or the devil. For example, some worldly people will attack the things you say from the Bible because to them, there are just some things you're not allowed to say. You have to be politically correct. Sometimes that might even be the result of good intentions. Maybe they're just trying to prevent people from being offended. Well, we never correct the Bible, uh, so we're going to speak its truth regardless. Of course, we should never seek to offend people, but we're not going to withhold biblical truth because it might offend someone. Another example, some people believe in correct doctrine. Much of it's created by the devil to confuse people, and some of those people show up at a church to try to spread their bad doctrine. Again, their intentions are good. They're just trying to tell people what they think the truth is, but you have to recognize that as a tool of the enemy to confuse people and to get people to, to misunderstand one another. There are many examples of people who, we, who will be used by our spiritual enemies, and we'll go over some more in a bit. But part of growing up in your faith is learning how to deal with people like that and the spiritual enemies that drive them. That's why I've titled this message, Cutting Through the Crap, and I did make sure with my boss that I was allowed to use the word crap in a message title. <laughs> but it's called Cutting Through the Crap, because Ehud's going to teach us how we can sort through all the details and get right to the heart of our conflicts with people. And he's going to teach us the source of the solution to all our conflicts, and hopefully we'll have a little fun with this along the way. So let's read, I'll start in verse 15 of Judges 3. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehun, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. I told you, this is, this is a weird story. That's an important detail. Eglon is a very fat man. Verse 18. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly and the dirt came out. The dirt came out. What do you think that is? Cutting through the crap. That's what we're talking about tonight. Verse 23. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed, and behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead upon the earth. And Ehud escaped when they, while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Syriath, or Sirath. And he and it came to pass when he was come, he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down from, with him from the mount, and he before them. 
And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. And there you have it. One of my favorite weird stories in the Bible. But like I said, there's a lot we can learn from this. Trust me, there's a lot we can learn from this. And the principles we're going to look at tonight are only going to get more applicable in our lives as the world becomes more and more hostile towards biblical truth. So let's break this story down, and we'll see three steps to confronting the people in your life who are driven by your enemies. The first step is, number one, prepare for battle. And that's what we see in verses 15 through 17. This guy Ehud, he makes a dagger with two edges that was about 18 inches long. That's the length of a small sword. He attaches the dagger to himself before he approaches Eglon. The, the, the enemy he's dealing with. And if you've been studying the Bible for any length of time, there's a good chance you're aware of the picture here already. In Scripture, any sword, especially a two-edged one, is going to picture the Word of God. Ephesians 6.17 talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we can see why that sword is such an effective weapon and tool for us if we look in Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the Word of God is quick, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the written words of God that you're holding in your hand, the ones we're reading from right now, those words are the most powerful weapon you can ever get your hands on. And for us, that weapon is a spiritual one. It, dif- it divides asunder the soul and spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intense of the heart. It cuts those things. The mention of joints and marrow here is an interesting one uh, because that's a very physical thing to use a sword on. And if you look up the words joints and marrow and bones throughout Scripture, those are always physical, like from what I've seen, they're just physical references. And I only bring this up because someone was recently asking me about this part of the verse um, and and why it was in there, and I didn't have a good answer. But I believe that the mention of a physical use is a very particular use of the word of God on a very particular enemy. We don't have time to get into that, but read through Job 40 if you're interested in that. And as a hint, watch out for mentions of bones and sword as you you read through there. That might clue you in onto what I'm thinking uh, the joints and marrow might be referring to here. But for tonight, the point is the Bible is powerful. It's our spiritual weapon. And if we're trying to use any other weapon or tool to solve our problems, we're doing it wrong. Proverbs 30, 5 through 6 tells us that every word of God is pure. It's the shield that he provides for us. Psalm 119, 160 tells us that his word is true from the beginning. That's quite the guarantee. So why do we trust in other things rather than the Bible? 2 Samuel 22, 31 tells us that his word is tried. So no matter how much mankind tries to tear it down or poke holes in it, the Bible, the words of God, will stand strong. That's why we can trust when when Psalm 12, 6, and 7 tell us that his words are pure words, which he'll perfectly preserve forever. We can trust that. So it's pretty clear that the only thing you need to prepare for battle is the word of God. It's 100% sufficient for all our problems. And sure, Ephesians 6 you know, mentions the sword of the Spirit, but it also mentions the whole armor of God, and the sword of the Spirit ends off that 
that discussion. But if you go read that passage again tonight, look at the other pieces of armor. What are they? You gird your loins with truth. Where do you get truth from? The word of God. You shod your feet with the gospel of peace, which comes from the word of God. You take the helmet of salvation, which comes from the word of God. You take the shield of faith, and your faith is resting in the word of God. All the stuff we're told to arm ourselves with, truth, peace, salvation, faith, we get those from the word of God. So the word of God is sufficient for all our problems. But do you actually believe that? Do you believe that the words of God that he gave to us are sufficient for dealing with every issue that we could face in this life? I ask because most Christians would say they believe that, even though they don't really believe that. Most Christians like the Bible, but there are just some situations or confrontations that they turn to other worldly sources of truth for. But we believe God when he tells us that the Bible is pure, true, and tried. So when Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Bible knows the thoughts and intents of our very hearts, we trust that we can use God's word to address any situation or to fix any problem. So when we're preparing to deal with our enemies or people driven by our enemies, we have to prepare for that confrontation with the word of God. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Because we're in the middle of a spiritual war. So we should be using the spiritual weapon that God gave to us. We can't be going to carnal weapons that mankind has devised. Stuff like conflict resolution strategies, psychology, political correctness, stuff like that, that isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. But why mess around with, it, with the stuff when we know the Bible has all the answers? Rather than trying a bunch of different stuff to try to figure something out, why don't we just cut through all the crap and deal with the heart of the issue using the one thing we know can get to the heart of 100% of our issues? 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What use have we for man's wisdom when we have God's wisdom available to us 24-7, whenever we need it, if we just pick up that book? That's why we prepare for battle by spending time in the word of God. Ehud had to get his dagger ready before he confronted his enemy. We ought to have our sword ready before we confront our enemy as well. Not that we have to make it like Ehud had to make his dagger, but we ought to spend time in his word every day, making sure we're ready to use it when we need it. And we ought to keep it close to us as the battle approaches, whenever and wherever that might be. Ehud hid his dagger on his leg so he'd be able to draw it quickly when the time for battle came. So we should hide God's word in our hearts so we're able to pull them out quickly when it's time for us to use them. But that's just the preparation for the battle. When the time for battle arrives, it's time to, number two, poke the blade. See what I'm doing with the, the P's and B's? And that's what we see in verses 18 through 22. Ehud doesn't beat around the bush with Eglon. Check it out again. We'll read, um, I'll start in verse 20. It says, And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And the dirt came out. I can almost not read that with a straight face. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I think I was talking to John earlier. Somebody told me this story 
for the first time when I was like a freshman in high school. Um, they didn't read it to me, they just told it to me. And I'm like, there's no way that's in the Bible. Like, th that can't be in the Bible. And then they showed me and it was. Um, so praise the Lord for weird stories. Um, <laughs> anyways, Ehud entered the room prepared with the intention to use the dagger. He was polite and patient while he waited for an opening to use it. But as soon as the right moment arrives, he unsheathes it and applies the dagger exactly where it needed to be. And once he applied the dagger, it was quite literally out of his hands. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in the third step. But Eglon was so fat that he <laughs> How fat was he? <laughs> that Ehud actually lost the dagger when it went into his fat rolls. Try getting that image out of your head. You're welcome. Hopefully you ate dinner already. But the point of the story isn't just to gross you out, though I admit I, I enjoy that. No, the real point of going through this story is taking a look at how we approach spiritual warfare. Because if our approach to spiritual warfare is going to be biblical, we have to prepare ourselves using the words of God. And then we apply the words of God to the heart of the battle. And that has several applications in our daily lives. Spiritual warfare manifests itself in several ways, and our battles can be on multiple fronts. So I've listed on your sheet some types of spiritual warfare, and these are good to familiarize yourself with because they're ways that we fight in spiritual battles. So let's just go down through some of these. Letter A, evangelism. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.11, which says that we're to persuade men. We have the truth of the gospel, and we need to win people to Christ. Those are the marching orders that Jesus left us when he left this earth. Focusing on communicating the biblical truth to lost people is critical to effective evangelism. We can try all sorts of ways to dress it up for them, but eventually you have to cut through all the malarkey and give them the words of God. Because the words of God are the only words that are really able to change their hearts. Letter B, contending for the faith. We see that in Jude 1, 3 through 4. Jude 1, 3 tells us that we're to earnestly contend for the faith. Because there are going to be dudes that creep into your church. Verse 4 talks about guys who crept in unawares. That's the Bible's word, not mine. So you have to be ready to defend against those guys when they attack. And if you want to be able to withstand those attacks, you better use the shield of God's word. Letter C, exhorting and convincing the gainsayers. We see that in Titus 1.9. We're told to exhort our church family, and we do that by holding fast the faithful word so we have the sound doctrine we need to provide God's encouragement for them. Any other source of encouragement or motivation isn't going to last. And coupled with that, the same sound doctrine is used to convince the gainsayers, meaning we should be using the same truth to deal with people who are speaking ill about what we're teaching or what we're doing. We don't have to apologize for what we believe because what we believe is pulled directly from the words of God. All we have to do is use the words of God to communicate with the gainsayers and then let God convince them of the truth. Ultimately, them being convinced is up to them, but our job is to use sound doctrine to help them understand. Letter D, counseling fellow church members. 2 Timothy 4.2 it talks about that. As brothers and sisters in Christ, it's our duty to bear one another's burdens so that as a whole, our army is more fit for battle. If you're not bearing one another's burdens, if somebody's stuck out in left field all by themselves struggling, they're not going to be able to, to win others to Christ the way they would if you just pick them up and help them. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us that we're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort each other. We're to do that with long-suffering and doctrine. 
And we're to do that by preaching the word. So yes, we're to help one another out, but we do that using the truth we find in the Bible. Similarly, letter E says, confronting a brother or sister in Christ. Um, Matthew 18, 15 talks about that. It's actually inevitable that, that problems are gonna pop up between brothers and sisters in Christ and spiritual battles become difficult if you're in the middle of fights with people on your own side. Those are problems that need dealt with if we're gonna war effectively. And Matthew 18, 15 makes it clear that it's our duty to confront those problems rather than just passive aggressively sweeping them under the rug and pretending like they're not there. We have to confront those things. But like we said in the previous one, you do your reproving and rebuking according to doctrine. You use the word of God to help your brother or sister see the error of their ways with the goal that they fix their issue and become more like Christ as a result so that, again, we're all stronger together. Those are just some specific ways that spiritual warfare plays out in our lives. We evangelize so we have more soldiers in our army. We contend for the faith and convince the gainsayers to prevent the enemy from demoralizing our army. And we counsel and confront our fellow soldiers so that we can be built up into better, more mature soldiers. Remember, our goal is the Great Commission, winning souls to the Lord and making disciples, seeing churches planted. That's our goal. But we can only do that if we do it by the book and stick to sound doctrine. We can't waste our time or attention on things that aren't going to accomplish what the words of God can accomplish. So, like Ehud, we can't be afraid to use our sword. Jeremiah 48.10 says, Cursed be he that doth the, doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. God, God's given us all, God's given us his all-powerful sword so we can change the world with it. Shame on us if we're too afraid to use it. But when we use it, we should expect results. And one thing we learned from Ehud is that when the sword enters, when the word of God enters a situation, the dirt leaves. And I'll just keep calling it dirt so I can keep a straight face. Ephesians 5 tells us about the cleansing power of God's word. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The word doesn't only have the power to cut. It also has the power to sanctify and cleanse. And whether the people we're in conflict with know it or not, this is exactly what we all need. This is why we use the word of God, uh, even with each other, because it can sanctify and cleanse you if you let it. If you've prepared properly, the word will already have cleansed your heart and taken care of your dirt in the situation. So when you apply the word in battle, when you poke with that blade, yes, it will cut right where it needs to, but it also has the capability to cleanse them and give them exactly what they need. John 17, 17, you know, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the word of God sanctifies a person. That's what actually does it. So if we're diligent to focus on the word alone when we're dealing with our enemies, that can help us get all the dirt out of the way so God can really take hold of someone and get to work. And just notice how good Ehud is at this. He pokes that blade right where it needed to be to get the job done. He doesn't start making small cuts on his arms and legs and then go for it. No, he just, he just goes for it. He puts it right where it needs to be. And yes, it was messy. Probably didn't smell too great. But at the end of the day, it did the job it was supposed to because Ehud allowed the blade to do its thing. And that brings us to the third step in dealing with our enemies. Number three, permit the bleeding. 
And this is the aftermath of what we see in verses 23 through, through 30. Once Ehud applied the blade and saw that it took hold, he didn't wait around to see what happened. In verse 23, he just leaves. He just puts it in there and, see you, I'm out. He <laughs> leaps through a window onto the porch and he, he just leaves. He closes and locks the doors. So he isolates Eglon until the blade finishes its job. And eventually, Eglon succumbs to his injury. And the point here is that when you apply the word of God in a confrontation, you have to let the word of God do its work. And sometimes that takes time. Sometimes you have to walk away and let people stew on God's words before you can see the full effect. And yes, the word of God can injure people to keep them from harming God's flock, but cutting and cleansing can also be a surgical thing. Removing some sin from a believer's life so they can start growing properly again. Regardless of the application, once you apply God's word, you have to leave the results up to God. He didn't start kicking him while he was on the ground or anything like that. He just got out of dodge. And, and so, yeah, leave the results up to God. But like we talked about, his word is the thing doing the work. Ecclesiastes eleven five through 6 says, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. So at the end of the day, it's not for us to always know what God is doing in people's hearts and lives. Sometimes after a confrontation, people just disappear, and you may never know what happened to their heart. You just have to trust that God uses his word to guide and direct them. And ultimately, we know that they have the free will to decide whether or not to turn to him as a result. So in a very real way, once your job of inserting the word of God into a situation where it needs to be, you just have to back away until the word does its work. Now, you can obviously answer questions and help people understand things further, but until they actually confront God's word, they're going to struggle to move past that. And that's sort of the whole point of, pre- of you preparing with the word of God. At the end of the day, you want the enemy to have to confront the word of God because we can't stand up against our enemies, but the word of God can. And so you want to force them to confront the word of God because that's the one thing the enemy can't stand up against. That's the one thing nobody can stand up against. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word that So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Praise the Lord, man. His word isn't going to return void. We don't understand everything God does. That's why he uses his word when we're dealing with other people. That's why we use his word. This is why man's wisdom won't get us anywhere. And as long as we use his word when the battle arrives, we can trust that his word won't return void. And whether or not the people we're up against allow God to change their heart, we know that God's word will do what it needs to do in them. And like I said, sometimes this will hurt people. God says in Hosea 6, 5, Therefore, I, or therefore have I hewed them by, my, by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the, thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. And that's what we see pictured here with Ehud and Eglon. But that's not always the case. It doesn't always hurt people. Sometimes it comforts, uplifts, and encourages people. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be God, 
even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. If he's the God of all comfort and the Father's Father of mercies, we should expect his word to have a positive impact in people's lives if they allow it to. But remember, the outcome, that's between them and God. Our job is to apply the word. Like 2 Timothy 4.2 says, it's our job to preach the word in season and out of season. That's our job. We leave the results up to God. So how well prepared are you for spiritual warfare in your life? The Bible tells us we're soldiers. So we have to be ready to face our enemies and the people that those enemies send our way. We have to be ready to face them. And the only way to successfully fight those battles is using the word of God. And the only way we can expect to be able to effectively wield the word of God is by preparing ahead of time. You can't just carry your Bible around and expect to open it and be at the right page at the right time. No, you gotta be in that thing. You gotta let it soak into you. You gotta, you gotta know it. It's gotta be in your heart. So are you in that book every day, learning the truth of every page and then committing that truth to memory so you have it when you need it, when those battles unexpectedly occur? We need to trust in God's word. The world keeps getting weirder, and as a result, people get weirder and weirder. But the solution to all the weirdness remains the same. God's word has all the answers. And if you really believe that, if you believe that enough to allow it to saturate your life, you'll find that God starts using you to win those spiritual battles that come your way. Whether you see a lost person come to know Jesus because of a conversation you have with them, or whether you're able to protect a brother or sister in Christ from bad doctrine, or whether you're able to simply resolve a conflict that you're having with another believer, God's word has all the answers, and it's sufficient to take care of any situation you find yourself in. So aside from this gross Bible story about stabbing a fat guy with, and poo running out of his belly, um, I hope that we can walk away from this passage with a greater appreciation of just how sufficient the word of God is if we allow it to be. We just apply the word of God in our life and, and, and we watch it do its thing and God can accomplish great things because of that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for, we thank you for the Bible, even the weird stories. We, we like it all, Lord, and that's why we talk about it. And so I just thank you for this clear picture of, of how to use your word uh, when spiritual warfare comes our way. Because Lord, we understand we have an enemy and we understand that this world is full of lost people who, who aren't necessarily directly our enemy, Lord, but, but the enemy knows how to use them. And the only way to properly fix that, Lord, is by applying your word. And so, God, I just pray for wisdom and I pray for growth as we, as we study your word each and every day, Lord. I pray that you just prepare us for the battles ahead, whatever that, whatever that means, whatever they might be. I just pray that we'd be prepared to, to use your word to overcome the obstacles that come our way, and, and you get glory as a result from our lives. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.